This is a short episode to round off the year. Throughout 2023, we've been asking guests to tell us about a particular uh, cultural artifact that's had a political influence on them. So this episode brings together their responses. You'll be hearing from uh, guests from previous episodes about uh, books, films, music, and political events that they've found politically influential. Thanks to all of our guests for their contributions, especially those whom we had forgotten to forewarn and had to come up with something on the spot. Um, you'll find a list of all the things mentioned in the notes accompanying the episode. So, um, thank you to everybody who's been listening throughout the year, and especially to our guests who've given up time to speak to us. We'll hear first from historian Mary Muldowney. The first one is a film from... Um, I checked this from 1978, which is a bit... <laughs> depressing to realize that I was a sentient human being that many years ago. It's a film called The Tree of the Wooden Clogs by uh, Hermano Olmi, who I have never seen anything else by him, Mm. but it's an incredibly beautiful film to look at. I've seen it a few times since, and I saw it many, many years ago uh, in the Irish Film Theatre, which was then in Earlsford Terrace, and is now, I think, where the Sugar Club is. Uh, But it's set on uh, a northern Italian farm in the 19th century, and it's about uh, some of the families who live on the farm and are totally under the thumb of the landowner. Hmm. Literally, everything they do is dictated by the landowner's wants and needs. And the particular focus is on a family, a mother, father, and their little boy. The local priest advises them that in order really to kind of slightly move up in the world or have any chance of doing better, the boy should go to school. So he is to walk a long distance every day and his wooden clogs, one of them breaks and they have no wood for the father to carve him a new one and the child can't walk that distance on a bare foot. So the father discusses this with the mother and he decides to take what was a very subversive step and cut the wood from one of the trees on the estate and he gets found out and the landlord evicts the family because this was a dreadful thing to do despite the fact that you see all the trees and all of the land and everything else that the child couldn't even have the wood for the clogs. So um, the, the film ends with the family piling all their meagre belongings onto a cart and uh, really going off into a very uncertain and possibly very miserable future if they had one at all and the other families that live on the farm I think there were three or four of them standing there obviously very sympathetic but not able to do anything and probably realizing they were going to be in this could be in the same position themselves and I you know while it's not explicitly political or anything there's no way you couldn't take a political message from Mm -hmm. it Uh, and it's also a very beautiful piece of cinema you know 
Um, my other one is uh, a bit more cheerful. <laughs> uh, Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life, which I rewatch every Christmas. <laughs> um, but George Bailey is a great character and uh, Jimmy Stewart appeared in a lot of Capra's films and they have a really strong political underpinning. You know, it's not explicitly socialist, it's not polemical, but you, again, couldn't avoid taking messages from it. I mean, I would have seen it first in my teens as well. And, um, you know, the fact of it's it's very much about the triumph of the little man, but for the good reasons, not, you know, that uh, it's not revolutionary in that sense. The revolution, I suppose, is to stand up to the capitalists in the various films yeah. uh, and to stand up against political corruption. Yeah. So it was condemned by various newspapers and pundits at the time as being pro-communist. And it's it's a great movie anyway. <laughs> so watches everybody. Yeah. Uh, the third thing came out of my involvement with the uh, organizing committee for the Robert Tressel Festival that uh, from people from, they're all left, but from different uh, groups and organizations, uh, we're organizing this one day thing, which is based on the ragged trouser philanthropists. And it's kind of prompted by the fact that Robert Noonan, Trussell's real name was born in Dublin. And uh, I would have read it again as, I mean, I had a very busy teenager. <laughs> I spent a lot of time watching movies and reading books. <laughs> it's a wonder I ever got through anything. But um, the Ragged Trouser Philanthropist is uh, genuinely acknowledged to have been the first serious novel about working class life. And it is announced as such by Tressel. And um, there are some omissions from it, you know, but it's still a book that rouses readers of a certain inclination <laughs> to feel very angry about the way that the workers in the uh, book are being treated. Mm -hmm. It's set on a, the, a building site on a house being restored for a, a rich man and you know there's all the stereotypes that come into it but yeah. you know very sadly over a hundred years later the issues that come up are all exactly the same as we're dealing with now you know that while things may have improved marginally and that's largely through working class resistance to what was happening around them we have an enormous health crisis we have an enormous housing crisis you know we have idiot politicians <laughs> in the doll and you know generally um the, the kind of even low-level corruption that goes on and that mm. got us a pretty bad name for a long time mm. hasn't improved. So Mugsborough, which was based on Hastings, where he lived when he wrote the book, uh, could be Dublin. Sadly. <laughs> it's <laughs> true. Anarchist activist Gregor Kerr. Two things that, that jumped to mind in terms of, of sort of influences or memories or mem memorabilia, I suppose, that, and one one is one that I don't actually have anything, any physical representation of as such, but I mean, it's something that really got me into politics in the first place would have been the, the Dunn Stowers anti-partheid strike. Right. Uh, Mary Manning, Karen Gearan, etc. Um, I mean, I was involved in student politics at the time and through that got involved 
just in supporting the the, the Dunstow strike. And I suppose the the experience of seeing um, ordinary working class people standing up for something and for people and an issue that didn't directly affect them, that was about solidarity with people on the other side of the world and that was really about a big political issue uh, has always stuck with me, um, as, as shown how in terms of what the, the power trade unions have to actually influence stuff and the power trade unions have to, to, move, to, move, to move huge uh, obstacles um, and the effort that was put in by those young people at the time. Um, Christy Moore's song really, really sums it up so well, you know. Um, and I suppose they they fought the, the bureaucracy of the trade union movement as much as they fought um, the done stores uh, right along the line. And I mean, I know they got great backing from some of the leadership of my dad, other than talking about the wider trade union movement mm. that could have done so much more. Um, and just another, I suppose, just a, a, a memorabilia I, ha- I, I do have here is I have a plaque here or a, or a replica of a plaque um, uh, that in Dunleary uh, in 2013, we, we had a commemoration for the uh, 100th anniversary of the 1913 lockout and the, uh, the impact it had in, in, in Dunleary. Mm. Um, you know, and it was a, a week long of events. So it's just something to have there on the wall, I suppose, or on, on the shelf. That's just a memory of, of that particular campaign. And again, it's the power of the trade union movement and the power of workers standing together yeah. and, and being able to um, being able to stand together, being able to resist a huge oppression. And as we're comparing that to where most of the trade union movement is now, <clears throat> is uh, quite a contrast. Um, but that there are still pockets of resistance and still lots of pockets where workers are getting organised and are doing stuff. And unfortunately, quite often having to fight the leadership of the of the union movement just as strongly as they have to fight uh, uh, the bosses, or, or even more so, in order to even get at the fight of the bosses. Unfortunately, but so that's two things I suppose that just spring to mind when you when you ask me that question. Republican activist Des Dalton. In terms of what you know, things that I would have found. A, a text that I would have found inspirational at the beginning, say, particularly mm. as a teenager, and it's something I'd still drawn, would be Ernie O'Malley. Um, right. Had a big influence on me. Um, I, I remember it was my mother actually who introduced me um, um, on another man's wound. I, I yeah. remember getting it as a gift when I was about 14. I was blown away by it. And then I got a copy yeah. of The Singing Flame because I yeah. had never heard of O'Malley, didn't know anything about him. I didn't know Daniel's attitude and the treaty and everything. Then I got a copy of the Seeing Flame, and actually the Seeing Flame, funny enough, gripped me even more so. And right. it kind of there was always an interest there, and from there it really kind of developed. And I kind of wanted to more learn more and more, mm. you know, about th- th- that kind of republicanism and those kind of people and some of the people like he was mentioning. I wanted to find out more about who they were and and the connections yeah. and kind of you know one thing fed on fed on to another into another and. Um, kind of from there on, then I got I remember getting a copy of Buyer Bell's book, The Secret Army, and oh, then yeah. I discovered it was this whole. I remember in the 80s, um, there was a program called uh, it was a, a drama, um, Caught in the Free State, hmm. and it was, um, it was about the German spies who came over, um, yeah. to you know, it was quite com- you know, semi comical in many respects, who come over, um, to and we're uh, in this. Emergency counties in, in the forties and so on. Yeah, and I remember like Neil Trobin, for instance, when he played Stephen Hayes and so on. And I remember I, I saw that when I was about twelve, and I was fascinated. 
that there was mm. an IRA in the 1940s. And I, like, mm. I knew about 1916 and 21 and the Civil War. But then there was this gap then between there and 1969. Certainly here's this IRA of the 40s. So out of that then, I'd say Byer Bell's book, for instance, um, that show me then there was this whole continuum of a movement and so on. And from there, like from 14, 15, 16, yeah. I was kind of so this stuff up. I was really, really absorbed by it. Author and academic Michael Flavin. I think something that influenced me personally a lot was Orwell's homage to Catalonia. And I think I've mentioned to you before about that I'd read these kind of red top socialist tabloids at the you know, mm. teenage. When I went to university, I got into Marxism today, which I, I, I think was saying really important things because it was basically saying that even when I used to read socialist worker and like minded publications, there was this, it seemed to be predicated on the idea that the worker, and there was mm. really strange, almost looking downness that they had on the worker, you know, was somebody who worked in a factory and was in a trades union and probably wore a cloth cap, smoked roll-ups and bread whippets. It was odd. It wasn't particularly healthy. And mm. living in Birmingham, you saw the recession of the 1980s and people weren't. In, you know, the numbers of people living like that were decreasing. Yeah. And I think what Marxism today was doing very, in- I mean, I was a very nerdy undergraduate, you know, everyone else is down the hacienda taking ecstasy. I'm reading yeah. Marxism today. But it was basically saying the social, you know, the economic base and society is changing and left leaning thinking has to change, too. Yeah. And there was an awful lot of derision from my Marxist friends about me reading this. But from that, I did start to read more stuff from the Communist Party of Great Britain, who I think were quite rarefied, but were having interesting ideas that I think mm. led forward into how Labour repositioned itself in the in the 90s. And so I, from that, I think, yeah, I, I definitely found from that, I was kind of thinking that this Communist Party was OK. And then I read Homage to Catalonia, which just shows, again, you know, the infighting and the rivenness within the Republican side at the very moment it needed unity. It needed mm. 1930s Jerry Adams, didn't it? But at the very moment there was the crisis and it needed unity, it just dissipated into these factions fighting each other and doing the fascist work for it. But Orwell is a brilliantly evocative and lucid writer, you know, at his best. I think things Mm. like 1984 a bit overrated, actually, but I think homage to Catalonia from somebody, again, who was on the front line. Now, Mm. he was in a small faction in a relatively inactive part of the conflict. But when conflict happened, he was there and he took part. And I think that did a lot for just kind of bringing clarity to some of my thinking around politics. I've mentioned books that I read that made an impact. Have you ever read Reluctant Judas by Jeffrey Robinson? No. And this guy's a QC. There was a guy called Kenneth Lennon who was a special branch informer. He was in the UK. I've got the book Mm. here. Um, I read it at Senate House first, the University of London Library, and somewhat worryingly I had to give my details before they let me have it. So I don't know if I'm on some weird part. (laughs) But basically, Kenneth Lennon was a guy from Northern Ireland who got Mm. taken in by the police and said they had footage of him at this demonstration doing this thing. And they gave him the offer of either to, you know, become an informant for them or face the consequences. So he became an informant. But then he also became an agent provocateur and was getting little Irish groups in Luton and, you know, outposts like that. Wow. Do things like commit robberies that then got them put away and made the police look good. In the end, Lennon, it all got on top of him. He started drinking heavily and started mm. saying what was happening. Bizarrely, he walked into a London club, pissed out of his head one night, and got talking to the jazz singer George Melly, 
right. told him everything. Melly said to him, look, get yourself down to, I think, the National Council for Civil Liberties. They'll have a lawyer. They'll tell you everything. He did. Mm. There was a press conference. And a couple of days later, he was found dead near Gatwick Airport with a couple of bullets in his head. And the story at the time was the IRA have obviously caught up with him and murdered him as an informer. Jeffrey Robinson's accused, you know, it's one thing, I've got Who Framed Colin Wallace by Paul Foote, and of course, mm. Foote was a left-wing journalist. Mm. But Jeffrey Robinson was a QC, and he was, you know, a very much an establishment figure. And if, mm. he, if he thought something stank there, then I think it probably did. Historian Brian Hanley. Ah, yeah. Uh, the Gift by The Jam, that album. Right. And okay. possibly several others. Um, certainly, certainly the Style Council is our favourite shop. Um, and anything that Weller was doing in the early yeah. 80s, early to mid 80s, Paul Weller. I, I, I said at a, a history conference one time that, you know, and it was about activism and stuff that far more than, than James Connolly or any other writer, Paul Weller was yeah. what I took my, you know, cues from. Um, but uh, and it was great. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, really um, great. But great uh, but definitely, yeah, I would say I will. I get you the exact quotes or something sometime. But yeah, that more than anything else in terms of a cultural yeah thing, uh, it wasn't until probably early 1987 I read War in Irish Town by M. McCann, which had a big mm. effect. Mm. But yeah, much earlier than that. Music. The jam. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, and it's amazing. I find I find this really fascinating how central music is to political identity. Yeah. For a lot of us. I think people of a broadly similar age range. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it, it, it's it's a very nineteen eighties thing as well, I think. Yeah. I think it does change. I could be wrong, but I think it does. There was a moment where it was kind of almost expected that a band would have a view. Yeah, if they didn't, they were considered real weird, you know. Yeah, completely. Like Duran Duran or something, you know. Yeah, which they probably even did as well. But you know, it was like it's less on surface. If you yeah. unless you're actually coming out and telling us what you think, it's you're don't odd, us. you know. Yeah, yeah. We don't want to hear if you're not going to have a political opinion. Yeah, or I read um, Peter Hook's book about Joy Division on Hollis. Mm. It's very funny, very interesting. But my God, just the how how they sail so close to the wind all the time about you know the yeah like Barney at one of their early gigs saying something about Rudolf Hess and then on one of the posters they put a picture of like a panzer and he keeps going he keeps going we kept getting this Nazi stuff just because you kept you know referencing the Nazis all the time (laughs) from the Irish Anarchist Network okay uh, when I was Dean, what really helped me in some way was, and this will sound like, I don't know, uh, but V for Vendetta was a big. Oh, lots. uh, Yeah, that that was, yeah. And do you mean it like the film or do you mean the graphic novel? I actually plan to read the graphic novel. I haven't yet. Right. But the film, yeah. Yeah. But it's funny, it's very, very influential. I mean, even today you see it on marches. Like I saw a V for Vendetta march, uh, mask. Um, oh, one of the far right marches. That's an anonymous mask. They used that. Anonymous mask. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They ruined it. They ruined it. Yeah. Yeah, they ruined it completely. 
The funny thing about it is that uh, the author was an anarchist. Yeah. So it's it's ridiculous when far right and uh, movements use it. Mm, but again, that would suggest coherence on their part, wouldn't it? If they <laughs> exactly. Snow <laughs> <laughs> Snow who influences my politics um, would be Margaret Kiljoy. She does um, she does some podcasts. She does she makes some sci-fi mm-hmm. um, writings. She does a bit of arts, but it's all very anarchist just by happenstance. Um, she is an anarchist herself, and I just find her extremely influential. I find her to be a really, really strong person. Right. So you find that on YouTube. And really, or find on YouTube. Find them on. I uh, find them on um, podcasts. I do podcasts with um, Robert Evans. Robert Evans would be another person who influenced my politics massively. Yeah. Um, during his time in when he did the women's war, mm-hmm. actually, that's a really good one. The women's war by Robert Evans and Jay Canrahan. Right. Yeah, Jay Canrahan does popular fronts. Right. It's like he, he split off from Vice, he got pissed off at them and started doing his own conflict journalism uh-huh. stuff. Be like niche conflicts you haven't heard of. Like he did, he met Boac. Uh-huh. So they'd be the anarchist combat organization that are um that are blowing up train lines okay. um from Russian troops going to Ukraine. Right. You know? Um yeah, he did work in Ukraine as well before it all blew up. He was doing interviews with um Rev D, the anarchist group in Ukraine. He actually did that before the war started, three days before the war right. started. And he done stuff with Hoods Hoods Clan, you are an anti-fascist uh, football hooligan group that have taken up arms in Ukraine. He does really good work, really good work. We met him, he did a screening in Dublin for Hoods Hoods Clan to raise money for them. That's brilliant. That's a, yeah, really cool guy. Does a great Really nice as well. So, thanks to our guests for those contributions. Um, You'll find a full list in the notes accompanying the episode. You might come across something you haven't seen before. Um, I think it provides an interesting view of how people's politics are influenced by different aspects of culture. Um, Since we were talking about music, I don't think we've mentioned on the podcast before that the theme tuning we usually use uh, was created by my colleague Kieran, who creates electronic music. As someone who's always favoured the acoustic, for the sake of variety, we'll play you out with an alternative version of the theme tune uh, cobbled together for guitar, bazooki, and an out-of-tune musical solo. So, Happy New Year! (laughs) 